Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29 will be our text this morning. Mark 6, verses 14 through 29. You'll notice that the notes in the back of your bulletin are for a sermon from a different text and a different preacher. Ryan had plans to be here this morning, but uh, is not well today, so he's at home resting, getting better. And, uh, and I'm honored to open the word in his stead. This morning's sermon is titled, A Clarifying Moment, The Cruciform Beheading of John the Baptist. A Clarifying Moment, The Cruciform Beheading of John the Baptist. Mark six fourteen through 29 <clears throat> follows on the heels of Jesus' growing fame. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Well, flashbacks are clarifying When watching a movie, you know you've entered a flashback, almost instinctively. The edges of the screen go blurry, something like what you see on the side screens here today. Or the camera starts to shake and it has a home movie feel, like you're actually there. There's a break in the feel of the film, and you sense that you're at another time. I'm one of those guys that, uh, when I watch movies with my wife, I'm asking a lot of questions. I'm not, not terrible, but I don't like not knowing what's going on, and I'm just spacey enough that I'm missing things, and uh, I have to ask, what was that all about? What's happening here? And a lot of times the answer is, we don't know what's going on yet. We'll find out, and that's the case. And then a flashback pulls things together. Flashbacks key you in on information, letting you know the motives of various characters, their personal histories, making sense out of otherwise disparate events, In the film, flashbacks help move the story along. They hint at where things are going and give you what you need to interpret what is unfolding properly. 
And so it is with the story we've just read in the middle of Mark chapter 6. Through the entire book of Mark, the camera has been on Jesus and his disciples, is on Jesus and his disciples, with the exception of two scenes. The book begins with the camera on John the Baptist and then quickly moves to Jesus. But then here for these 16 verses, the camera is back on John the Baptist. If we were to read from Mark 1 to Mark 6 today, here's what we'd see. We'd see Jesus establishing his ministry. Only several verses in, he's calling his disciples. It's not like some other gospels where we get his genealogy and birth narrative. Mark gets going with the ministry of Jesus. He's calling his disciples. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving people of their sins and preaching the word with authority. He has authority over all things spiritual. He also has authority over all things physical. He's putting down a killer storm by talking with his word. He calms a storm. He's healing people of profound diseases and handicaps. And we'd see Jesus going viral. Everyone was talking about it. His fame was growing. He was followed by hundreds, even thousands at a time. Rooms were so full where he would go, even if he was trying to avoid avoid people, that the doors wouldn't open. So some who wanted to uh, get their handicapped friend as close to Jesus as possible lowered him down through a roof. And only 28 verses into the first chapter, we read this. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Then after healing a leper, Jesus tells the man not to tell anybody. He has his reasons. But at 145, the man said, the, man, the text says, the man went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. He couldn't help it. So that Jesus could no longer enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. People were talking about Jesus. They were flocking to Jesus. And he's a good guy and good thing. He's these amazing powers and People are four guys that use those powers to heal people. He's an attractive figure, and everyone wants to be near him, and no one can seem to uh, get enough. Then, at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus sends out his disciples. Verses 12 and 13, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then at the end of chapter 6, the disciples return excited and exhausted, telling Jesus all about their adventure and what had happened. They attempted to retreat with Jesus, but guess what? They're followed by thousands, 5,000 plus women and children. And that's when Jesus miraculously and generously feeds the whole group. But in the middle of chapter 6, between the sending out of the disciples and their return, and in the middle of all of this excitement, We have this story of the death and beheading of John the Baptist. The camera pans away from Jesus and his disciples for the first time in six chapters. And it sets on Herod for his reaction to Jesus' growing fame. And the background to Herod's reaction to Jesus' growing fame is the story of John's death. And together they clarify what's going on in Jesus' work and what's going on in the gospel and where things are going. Well, the rest of this morning's sermon will unfold in two steps. First, we'll look at the story of John the Baptist. It'll be one long step. The second half, we'll consider the meaning of John the Baptist's death. All right, let's take a look at this story. 
The story of John the Baptist's death is a tragedy in one sense and a victory in another, but not as we might think of it. Uh, John's death is actually a victory. It's the victory part. The suffering of Christians is always a victory in the Bible because this is what eventually happens when they're faithful and it is a proof that they believe everything that they said and that their God is real and a demonstration to the world and everyone who witnesses it that God is who they said he is. The tragedy is in the life of Herod, a man who almost believed but in the end rejected God. Watch him. All right. Chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. There we see Herod's reaction to Jesus' fame. We see Herod's reaction to Jesus' fame. For the reasons we've already explored, Jesus had become well-known through his own healing and preaching, and now through that of his disciples. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others still said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets from old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Jesus was becoming a household name, but everyone was trying to figure out who he was. They had different answers. And the answers that Mark outlines here are the same answers that Jesus' disciples gave Jesus when Jesus asked them in several chapters later, who do people say that I am? Of course, at that time, Peter got it right. He's the Christ. Herod's response, he thinks he's John the Baptist. Now, they were both about the same age, practically the same age, and around at the same time. So um, it's likely that he thought that the spirit of John the Baptist had become manifest in this man who was running around doing miraculous things. As he had gotten to know John, this is the kind of stuff John might be doing if John were raised from the dead. Well, turn with me back to Mark chapter 1 for a moment. Before we unpack the story of John's beheading, which explains Herod's reaction, who was John? And why does he figure so importantly into the story? The first eight verses of Mark's gospel will answer that question for us. Mark Mark begins his gospel in this way, Mark 1 1, 1 through 3, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark begins his gospel by quoting from the Old Testament, A promise of a messenger from the wilderness who will preach in preparation for the coming of the long-promised Messiah, who is the Lord himself. Old Testament quotes can sound a bit cryptic and they're all too easy to blur over. Sometimes it's apparent how they fit into context. Sometimes it's not. It's relatively clear here. But whenever a New Testament author is citing a a verse in this way, he's referencing the broader context. And so we'll read a few verses around these verses that he quoted here. Mark quotes from the prophet Malachi who wrote in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And about the same messenger, Malachi wrote in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. So they're expecting a messenger, a prophet by the name of Elijah. And Mark quotes the prophet Isaiah who spoke about the coming of the Lord and his messenger as well. Isaiah 41 through 5. We see God's marvelous promise to his people. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. These are great promises. And the coming of the Lord himself to save will happen after a messenger goes before him to announce his coming. All these promises, by the way, are written against the backdrop of an utterly hopeless situation where the coming of the Lord is the only answer. The prophets preached clear and they preached good news. God will come to his people. He will end what is sad. He will forgive their sins. Lead them on a new exodus out of the slavery to sin and death. He calls him Elijah, this messenger who will come before him. The messenger will come from the wilderness. He will come preaching. He will prepare the way for the Lord and his work. Now, look at verse 4 of Mark chapter 1 and following. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is the promised messenger who prepares the way for the Lord. He comes baptizing and preaching for people to repent, that is, turn from their sin and self-righteousness, and to turn to God and accept his and the forgiveness of sins. John is a big deal, and he is a big deal because of who he's announcing. The bigger deal, the biggest deal, Jesus the Lord, whose sandals he says he's not worthy to untie. And since this book, the Gospels and God's plan of salvation, is about Jesus and not John, we don't hear much about John after Mark 1, 1 1.14. John 1.14, which reads, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel. And we shouldn't think here, oh, John is a preacher, but he's also a shady character. He got arrested. No, this is related to his preaching. He was arrested for what he was saying. And we'll find more out about that shortly. According to his own ambition, John decreases and Jesus increases. And his ministry begins, but ends with an arrest. And at the point of his arrest, Jesus' ministry begins. Now turn with me back to Mark chapter 6. Here we'll see where John's ambition to glorify Jesus took him. When Herod heard of Jesus' works and fame, he said in verse 16, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And there's a ring here of guilt and fear. And we know that against the backdrop of what's about to come. He killed a good guy and he knows it. God's guy. And now he's back to get him. He's back. His conscience has been haunting him, torturing him about this, so that when he hears about a miracle worker, the first thing that comes to mind is how he took the life of John, not an ordinary prisoner. 
Even killers have a sense that there is something, someone ultimately good and right in the universe and that they're on the wrong side. And Herod's conscience, though fallen, has got it right here. What was going through his mind? We get a flashback to answer that question. In verses, starting in verses 17 and following. In verse in 6, 17 through 18, Herod throws John in jail for preaching repentance. It reads, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod, the local ruler, local uh, Roman ruler assigned to the area, had committed adultery in marrying this woman in what was considered in Jewish law to be a form of incest, his brother's wife. And John had some kind of relationship with either the couple or just Herod. John came preaching for everybody everywhere to repent, just as Jesus would and his disciples were sent out calling people to repent of their sins and turn to Jesus, God's Messiah and the Savior from sin. But in the context of his relationship with Herod, that meant calling him to repent from a very particular sin and one that would make Herod uncomfortable to hear. He called Herod and Herodias to repent from their specific sexual sin, their adultery, their immoral relationship together. You see, Herod was a Roman colonial ruler over a Jewish area, and one of the rules, if you're one of these, is don't offend the moral sensibilities of the people you're ruling. If you want to rule well, they'll get up in arms, they'll throw a fit, they won't take your lead, they'll be difficult to govern. And Herod runs roughshod over this probably unspoken rule. They got together. And while everyone was up in arms, John the Baptist was at least clear enough and loud enough and direct enough to be offensive in calling the couple out for their immoral relationship. It should not surprise us that this confrontation of sexual sin does get John in trouble. Sexuality is intimately tied to our humanity, and our rejection of its proper ordering is an immediate consequence of our rejection of God's order and his glory. The Old Testament law is replete with instructions for, for uh, our sexual relations and our sexual lives. Romans 1 ties uh, the perversion of sex right to our abandonment of the glory of God and the trading of his truth for a lie. We take what is good and beautiful true and we invert it and we do that with sex. Sexual sin is the touchstone for our commitment to rule our own lives. I learned this very early on as a Christian. Through my first year as a Christian, um, I was a freshman of high school and drove to early morning band practice with the same guy each morning. He was a senior, upperclassman. I was a freshman and he was sexually promiscuous and he would take advantage of underclassmen, underclassmen girls. And one time in the car, there were a couple of folks in there, he was talking about how this one girl, he just knew he would marry her. Um, he just felt in his gut, he's going to marry her. And uh, his heart was overflowing with lust is what was going on. And he asked me, Trent, what do you think of that? And we'd talked about the gospel. He knew I was uh, a new Christian. And um, it sounded like a genuinely open-ended question. And I said something to the effect that I hoped that the Lord would bring me a woman one day who knows the Lord and just hope to glorify him uh, with whoever I marry one day. Uh, he slammed on the brakes, uh, threw the car door open, and kicked me out of the car. He was furious. Now, we weren't too close from home. 
but interesting. Other things we might have discussed would not likely have brought that kind of a visceral and volatile response. Now, the relationship was more than that. We talked, we were friends. But at that point, and even alluding to the fact that maybe his intentions with this girl were inappropriate, he was infuriated. And perhaps you caught this on the internet, but Doug Wilson, a pastor and scholar, was recently slotted to give lectures, two-hour, two one-hour lectures at a university in Indiana, explaining the Christian's view of, of sexuality and marriage. And hundreds of students rallied together in protest to scream, to shout, to uh, berate him during, in the course of the actual sessions. And there are videos of it all over the internet. Sexual sin is a touchstone for a commitment to rule our own lives. Could it be, though, that John was just a little morally uptight? Maybe his manner was unbecoming. Maybe he was uncharitable. It's always possible that Christians may be unheard for our manner. We believe that we're sinners in process. We won't always calculate this right. Christians have said things in wrong ways. I have and you have. And often we just forget the gospel in some of these more naughty conversations about right and wrong. But remember who John was. The first words out of his mouth in the book of John when he sees Jesus are, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let him increase, let me decrease. He was not out for a moral revolution. He was not a moralistic preacher. He was a Christ-centered preacher and his call for repentance was born of deep love that was apparent and with the hope that they would repent and come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Whatever John said and in whatever manner, both what he said and how he said it, were worthy and of the gospel. They were befitting God's messenger. He was, if anyone was, an ambassador for Christ. And he was arrested for it. And yet, John is the one who paved the way for the coming of Jesus. And so a reaction of rejection or acceptance is not necessarily an indication of our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. The truth will invite a diversity of reactions, including at times conversion, as in the case of Levi and some of the friends at Levi's party, tax collectors and sinners, or rejection, and even sometimes the use of force by the state to quiet the church or the persecution leading to death. Darkness rejects light, Evil rejects good, impurity rejects purity, lies reject truth, and false gods reject God. In this case, John's message was greatly offensive, especially, though we've noticed, to Herodias. It doesn't appear that Herod was too wound up, but he lived with his wife, and he had to do something about this guy. Who, after all, was John to tell them how they should live and what they should do with their bodies? And so... In 6, 19 through 20, we learn about their inner spiritual situation. We get an insight now into what was going on in their hearts and in their marriage, their motives under the surface. The inner spiritual situation of Herod and Herodias is clear in 6, 19 through 20, where we read, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Typical of a flashback, we get insight into their inner motives. Herod isn't as bad as we first thought, but Herodias is quite a bit worse than we first thought. 
She's losing her mind over this. Herod had to do something. She wanted him dead. But the text says, Herod feared John. And why? Because he was a holy and a righteous man. I'm just guessing here that Herod was lighter on John than he even told his wife. She wanted him dead. He puts him in prison. He's probably sliding him bread and telling her he's having him beat. These folks did not read Paul Tripp's book, What Did You Expect? Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. On his favor for John, Herod is picking up on something that Jesus said of John in Matthew 11, 11. That is true. Right from the lips of Jesus, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And even Herod could pick that up. And he even liked the guy, kind of at a personal level. It says he liked to listen to him. He was perplexed, but he listened gladly. You can imagine Herod asking John to come out. Go get John. John, do what you do. Do that preaching thing. Talk to me. And John would preach about Christ, the Lamb of God, no doubt preaching from the Scriptures, calling and being specific about Herod's particular sins that landed John in prison. He's bold, he's clear, he's a direct shot. And apparently Herod's okay with this, perplexed but listens gladly. No doubt... Given Herod's position, though, he was surrounded by kiss-ups. Yes, men always telling him what he wanted to hear. He loves their praise, but his life is a hollow existence all the same. That's the story of the Herodian dynasty. All these Herods were pleasure-seekers, approval-seekers, power-seekers. He had friends. Most of them were his friends for reasons other than their friendship. He was the center of his own life, and he was the center of the lives of those around him. He was a ruler. But then there's John. John is, at the, John is not at the center of his own life. And even from prison, he has no problem telling Herod what he needs to do to turn his own life around. Who does this to Herod? John doesn't talk anything like the rest of Herod's friends. He's clear-headed, authoritative, consistent, bold in approaching Herod as though he has nothing to lose. He's a genuinely good guy all the way through, a righteous and holy man. That's obvious enough. And he says the boldest things, and he believes all of it. It's rocking Herod's worldview, which doesn't have a category for somebody who does not speak and do everything for themselves. It's the only life Herod knows, and it's the way everyone that he runs with lives. It is the way all sons of Adam start. And what did John say? We spoke to Herod, as we said, about Christ, the Lamb of God. And he addressed him in his sin. And in verse 20 says, When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. He heard him gladly, but it always put him in an uncomfortable position where he had to do something. I remember driving home from a work dinner a couple of years ago in the car with two friends. One was a believer and one did not know the Lord. Uh, a friend who did not know the Lord was, uh, we, we were both good friends with him and had had conversations about Christ and invited him to church and good friendship there. My other friend, uh, his name was Greg Gewen, uh, was just bald and winsome. And it wasn't, un, it wasn't unusual to hear somebody talk about how they had recently had a conversation with Greg and talk about what they talked about, Jesus, um, the way the world is, the way we should live. He was pointing them to Christ all the time. And this shouldn't just be the reputation of some people who have a special get knack for this. It took years of talking and starting hard conversations and trying things out to get Greg to where he was at. 
born of love for people and a belief that all souls are precious, eternal, and dying, and hell-bound apart from Christ, Greg was compelled to open his mouth. He was faithfully a good example to me. When this car ride, we were in the car for maybe 30 minutes, he preached the gospel to my friend. I don't even know how Jesus came up, but it doesn't surprise me it did with Greg in the car. And uh, he's weaving in and out of parables, quoting Jesus, testifying a little bit to his own experience, and uh, talking about the Lord and about salvation in Christ. And I remember what my friend said after Greg left. It stuck with me. When he talks, you just want to believe him. It's like it's true. Herod may have felt the same way after hearing John talk. He wasn't nervous. It's true. He wasn't defensive. He doesn't need to defend his Lord. It's true. He preached the word, and so did Greg. On 621 through 29, Herodias eventually gets her way. You remember she wanted him dead. She was looking out for an opportunity, the text says, to manipulate Herod into killing John. And she found one, a perfect one. And this part of the story is not probably in any of the children's Bibles that you have at home. And the children, uh, we've got a, had some great help in the office over the last months cutting out, I think, a whole new batch of flannel graph. I mean, boxes of flannel graph. I didn't see anything like what I see in this story in those boxes. So let's read it again. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herodias' daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, is called a girl. She's quite young, probably 12. It would not be unheard of for women to dance at a party like this. This is Herod's birthday. He's a ruler. The military officials are there. Noblemen are there. You can imagine that would be the case. But it would be unusual, even unheard of. And this illustrates just how far gone Herod was and his friends for his stepdaughter to dance before him. And when you hear the word dance here, remember this is an adult party. This is an erotic dance. Why else would he be so excited? She consults with her mother after Herod offers her up to half his kingdom, an offer he couldn't really keep, by the way. That's just a way of saying, ask for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. Why would he do that? Maybe he wanted something in exchange. That's likely the case. Well, what does her, uh, the girl's mother say? She asked for John the Baptist's head. Perfect opportunity. Herod's in a corner. Here are all of his friends. He's made this public offer. And here's the reply. And like mother, like daughter, she adds, John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod, the text says, and we should believe it, is exceedingly sorry. 
conflicted about this. He knew it was wrong and he didn't want to do it. But there were other things that Herod wanted much, much more than John the Baptist alive. And that was his own reputation. What was right was not expedient in terms of his reputation. His reputation among men was more important to him than his reputation with God. He heard everything John said and John hadn't missed a beat. Through the grid of this priority, his decision was painful. But notice that it must also have been obvious. Immediately, he sent the executioner to retrieve John's head for the girl. Herod was happier to see John's face on a plate than to lose face before his friends. So between John's arrest in chapter 1 and the disciples going out in chapter 6, because this flashback represents something that happens in there, the disciples heard word of John's death and went to bury him. So what are they to make of this? What are we to make of this? Jesus is the Lord who comes to fulfill all of the promises that we read earlier in the sermon. John is his messenger, the promised one to come and announce the Messiah's coming. And yet he's imprisoned and does not, Jesus does nothing. And he's in this kind of danger and his head gets lopped off and John, and Jesus, sorry, does nothing. If God can't protect his messenger, then what can he do? It's a fine question, unless God would have purposes in not protecting his messenger. Perhaps this is the tenor of Christian discipleship in the direction of Jesus' own life. Well, we've looked at the story of John the Baptist. Now let's consider the meaning. Sorry, we've looked at the story of John the Baptist's death. Now let's look at the meaning of John the Baptist's death. Why is it here? Why did it happen in the first place? And what are we to make of it? Well, first, we can take out a lesson about sin and conscience. And I should add the urgency of believing. A lesson about sin and conscience. This flashback to John the Baptist's death clarifies this for us. In Herod's beheading of John, God's personal messenger, we have a vivid picture of the nature of sin and the problem Jesus came to solve. The Old Testament's full of train wrecks of sin like this and we find here that it's every bit a part of the human race and Jesus is coming down to earth to save us from it, to rescue some of us from it. It's a picture of what we were all, everyone in this room, capable of from birth. It's where sin goes. It's how sin looks when it grows. Consider as well that Herod isn't the only one, uh, only bad example here. He, he was complying with the perceived want of his crowd all of these leaders, community leaders, they would have been displeased and disappointed and even disrespected him had he not killed John. Sin is the trading of the glory of God for anything else, the truth of God for a lie, esteeming as more valuable anything in this world, the approval of those we respect. You think of someone you respect? Their approval, more than the approval of God. Any material possession, power over others. Herod had it all. We might not know what the issue was for Herod exactly without this story. He might not have known. He's kind of in with this preacher guy and he's got his career. But he was put on the spot to make a decision and clarity came. Sometimes I like to play a cruel game with my wife, Christy, especially on long drives. I give her two choices. 
And she has to pick which one she would rather do. For example, stand up in the middle of the church and scream for 15 seconds without interruption. Or swallow a moth. You pick. That always offends her. Uh, she rarely answers anymore. We haven't played a game in a while. There's a, you know, another possibility would be, um, would you rather eat 10 live banana slugs or take in 10 monkeys for pets for a month provided they couldn't hurt you or your children? Take your pick. And then explain your answer. And then if she explains her answer, of course, I'm all upset why she picked what she did and her reasoning never makes sense to me. And, and then she's, she's done. Now, in this game, in this game, it's always two horrible options next to each other. It's really not fair, and the only character that quality that comes out, rightly, is that of deep offendedness at my suggestions. But what if it was this for you? Have that promotion, but not be able to join with God's people in worship on Sundays. Or keep the same job you don't like and stay involved or get more involved in your church. How great is your God? Or how about refuse to cook the books for your new boss after 10 years of work to land this specific position? Or risk losing your job and keep your integrity? How great is your God? Or how about this one? Almost anything will fall under the umbrella of this one. How about gain the whole world and forfeit your soul or have Christ? How great is your God? Herod was successful according to the categories of the world and a lot going for him. He had a casual interest in God and liked listening to John talk about him. But when put on the spot, his decision was clear and he sent for John's head. And if you are here today and you don't call yourself a Christian, but you've been looking into this, recognize that if you were put on the spot, you would have to make a decision and it would show where you're at to be clear. We should all examine ourselves here. It's a great question for Christians and non-Christians alike. One way to know that you have moved from curiosity to conversion is that you're willing to do things that you would have never thought you'd do before that cost you much. In fact, as I look at back at my own conversion, I, can, I have memories of thinking, wow, I never would have done that. It's an evidence of conversion. That's how I know at a particular time that, yes, I had come to faith. Well, do you sin? I hope you'd say so. And if you wouldn't, you're a liar. The Bible says we're all sinners. But is your cost for obedience tolerance level especially low? You do fine by others and by God in your own imagination most of the time. Except when it costs you something, it's really hard to do what you know is right by God. Then there's the issue of conscience. Watch Herod's conscience with me. We get a lot of insight into his inner thoughts. You notice how much of those we get? Even if fallen, he's, he's sensitive, hospitable to the truth to a degree. If we follow the timeline of Herod's interaction with John, we come up with about six different C's and one G. In 6, 17 through 18, he has a careless conscience. Who cares? I'll marry my brother's wife. She's upset, throw John in prison. 19 through 20, his conscience is curious as he listens to John preach. I like that guy. I'd like to hear more of that. 
I'm uncomfortable, but I want more of it. And in 21 through 26, he's conflicted. I'm such an idiot. Why did I promise her that I'd give her half my kingdom? She's her mother's daughter. Then in 26 through 29, when he sends for John's head, we see that he has a calloused conscience and he hardens his heart. And in verse 16, where we see his reaction before this story, he has a guilty conscience. I knew it. John's back. Stupid Herodias. He could have turned at that point. Others have. And in Luke 23, 6 through 16, though, and unfortunately, we see where Herod's conscience goes to a point of condemnation. In Luke's account of Jesus' arrest and trial, we come into contact with Herod once more, this time a few years later. Pilate asked whether the man was a Galilean, Jesus, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate had become friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. We know the rest of the story. Pilate too is reluctant to release Jesus, but instead of displeasing the crowds, washes his hands of Jesus' blood and sends him to the cross. It's interesting. We see that Jesus unites people here. Sometimes he unites worst enemies. Oh, his power. And their hate for him. Herod and Pilate hated each other, but now that they've met Jesus, they're able to overlook their differences and govern together in peace. Jesus divides too. But isn't this a sad story, though, of Herod's? You know, we don't know Herod. But Herod is a person, and John knew him and invested in him, no doubt prayed for him. Men like Herod turned to God. We did, if you know the Lord Jesus. Maybe Christianity is interesting to you. Even if you're pretty sure it's not for you, you're here. You keep walking by your coworker's desk. He's got his Bible out. You throw questions out. Maybe even you'll poke a little fun, start conversation. And you enjoy those conversations. You want more of those conversations. You'd have more if you could have them. Not, uh, or maybe you, you wander in your neighbor's lawn when he's out. He's a Christian, and he likes to talk about these things, and sometimes you end up on the topic. And you come to church from time to time. My friend, this is your window. There's no promise you will not harden your heart tomorrow or in a year. Or in 10 years. You notice when Herod stands before Jesus. Or Jesus stands before Herod. Herod doesn't say a thing. Excuse me. Jesus doesn't say a thing to Herod. Although he questions him. Neither does Jesus perform a miracle. As though if Jesus did perform a miracle. It would confirm for Herod he is who he was. No. Herod didn't care. His heart was hard. His conscience condemned. My friend this is your window. There's no promise you will be curious later. Ask your questions. Open the scriptures. Confess the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you know someone like Herod who's opening up, don't miss the opportunity to talk. So we see a lesson about sin and conscience and the urgency of believing now. We also see a lesson about Jesus' death, about the nature of Jesus' death 
Remember our walk through the first six chapters of Mark about Jesus' growing fame? Well, even a casual reading will turn up another theme, and that is the growing opposition to Jesus. He was criticized by Jewish leaders for healing on the Sabbath. He confronts it with their own scriptures and claims authority over the Sabbath. Basically, I'm God and I make the rules. He forgives sinners, something only God can do. It's his prerogative. He offended the Jewish leaders by hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, even making a tax collector one of his disciples. Sinners coming to faith in him. After bad reception in Nazareth, his own hometown, he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And by doing this, Jesus is identifying himself with the prophets and the fate of the prophets, which was persecution and rejection and sometimes execution. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he'll be taunted when onlookers think that he calls out for help from Elijah. But Jesus has already clarified who Elijah is. Mark 9, 11. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? First Elijah must come. And he said to them, to his disciples, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased. And it is written of him. Well, what does it say about Jesus that his messenger was brutalized in this way? John's death is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus's. John goes out preaching, and just as Jesus calls his disciples, John gets arrested. Jesus will be arrested for his preaching. John was seized and bound, and Mark will use the same words to describe Jesus as one who is seized and bound. John was executed by a reluctant and weak-willed political ruler concerned for his own reputation before a crowd, and Jesus will be executed by the same. Herodias seized an opportune time to betray Jesus, and Judas looks for an opportunity. John died a violent and shameful death, and Jesus dies a violent and shameful death. Jesus came to go to a cross. And in Mark chapter 6, it's clear enough that that's where he's going. So we see a lesson about sin and conscience and the urgency of believing. We see a lesson about the nature of Jesus' death. We also have here a lesson about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. A lesson about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. This flashback to John the Baptist's death clarifies for us this. In this story, we have a collision of two different kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Herod's kingdom. And here's the difference. Jesus sends his disciples out healing and preaching good news of God's coming. And Herod sends his men to seize John and bind him and put him in prison. Then Sarah sends his man to take John's head. Jesus doesn't bow to the opinion of crowds. Herod is exceedingly sorry, but kills a man for the approval of a crowd. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom where the guilty are made free, and Herod's is a kingdom where the innocent get their heads cut off at the request of a 12-year-old girl. In the story of Herod's intersection with John the Baptist, we have a picture of the intersection of God's kingdom with the kingdom of man in this world. We also have a lesson on the Christian life. As we read through the gospel accounts, we see that these are written to answer the question of Jesus' identity. Who was he and what did he come to do? As you read the gospels, keep those questions in mind. 
He's the eternal son of God and he died in the place of sinners. But while the gospels are books about Jesus, they're also books about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. A call to discipleship, we find, is a call to life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He came to give life and life abundantly. He is the resurrection and the life. But Jesus' call is also a call to death. Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's before he went to the cross. What we find in the Gospels is that the kind of life that Jesus calls to us, gives to us and calls us to, is the kind of life that is so great that it is willing to lose this life and everything that comes with it for it. Living every day for Jesus means dying every day for Jesus. Dying to self. Dying to the things and the wants of this world. And we can do that because we have him. And by sandwiching the story of John's death right between the sending out of Jesus' disciples and their return, Mark is casting a shadow on the life of the disciples that they themselves would have picked up as they carried their beloved John's body without a head to the tomb, even with all the excitement of Jesus' work. In spite of their great success, death and evil loom on the horizon because Jesus and his disciples are in a fallen world. Evil purges purity, darkness repels light. But they are still successful in suffering and in persecution because as we've said, it is through suffering and persecution that the truthfulness and the reality of the God that we really do believe in deep down is made clear and shown true. Remember these words of Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. In Matthew 5.11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And the Apostle Paul's command, Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Our blessedness in persecution is a sign that what we are saying about Jesus is true. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. It comes as a surprise. It's a a fascinating story. It's a terrible story. But Father, make it to us a good story. Because as the death of John the Baptist is violent and casts a shadow on the life of Jesus and in the life of his disciples... It is a foretaste of the suffering that Jesus himself will know as the one who suffers in our place for us sinners, not unlike Herod, not unlike Herodias, not unlike the crowd at that party. Father, draw those who are here who do not know you to yourself. Turn their curiosity into conversation and then conversion We pray that none here would be condemned in the last day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.